Let's go before God in prayer. Please bow with me. Our Father, we thank you so much that we could come this morning and worship you. Uh, Lord, what a delight it is to come into your presence and to know you, God, and to speak of your marvelous, wonderful work of salvation that you are doing in our lives. Lord, in the hope that we have that one day that we will receive our inheritance and we will abide with you forever and ever and ever with no end. Oh God, praise be to your name. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word that you speak to us, that you make your will known. It's not suggestions, but God, it's your will and that you give that to us through the preaching of the word. And I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear that message that you have for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles if you don't already have them out and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses uh, five or uh, 15 through 21 through, the, um, through this next section. As you're turning there, let me just say this. It, you know, as I was thinking about uh, Paul's words here, I, it just sort of made me think about our focus, it seems like, that we have as a culture on uh, walking for exercise. You know, one, that's just one thing that is striking me, just as I see people in our neighborhoods out walking all over the place. And, and even in the country, people are out walking on the roads and in the evening and getting exercise. I mean, they now have gadgets you put on your wrist, your Fitbits or whatever, that will keep track of the number of steps that you have. And, and I've uh, even seen contests where people will join on groups to see if their group can get more steps in in a day than another group. Or businesses that will buy these products for their employees just to keep them healthy. And it just seems like as Americans we give a lot of attention to how much we walk. Uh, but praise be to God, as we look at the scriptures, it doesn't care so much how much we walk, but how we walk. And what I mean, of course, by that is, is how we live our lives. It's uh, interesting to see what Paul has been saying to us. And as he writes to us and to the church at Ephesus, he speaks of how God has saved his people out of darkness and a lifestyle of sin in which they once lived. And as a matter of fact, he spends the whole first half of this book talking about that. But then, as he comes to chapter 4, then he begins to address the way that we are to live our lives and in essence, he's, he's saying that the way that we must live must be consistent with what God has done in our lives. If God has truly changed a heart, then it, that must be evident by the way that that person lives their life. Because God's power is so great. God doesn't just change us part way. God works in us completely. And so... If a person professes faith in Christ, it is very true that we must see the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts because God makes us spiritually alive. I mean, we even looked at last week, verse 14, how we raise, we were raised from the dead. Spiritually, we have new hearts in Christ to, to love as God loves. And so Paul says in verse 1 that we are to be imitators of God, living that life of love. And then in in verse 8, he says that we are to no longer walk in the darkness as we once did, as, as fools, as those who live as if God has no claim on their life or no bearing on their life. 
Those who say there is no God, we're not to live that way anymore. But instead, we're to walk in the light, as we saw in verse 8. And now Paul comes to us and he says that we are to be careful how we live, no longer as fools, but as wise. Now, one of the challenges for Christians of, of any age in history has been to understand the times in which they live and to live in such a way as to glorify God. The purpose of life for those who are Christians is to live life in such a way that others see Jesus while enjoying a relationship with God. Kids, your parents have probably taught you the first shorter catechism question, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's right. That's exactly what it's talking about. If you want to know what that looks like, just go back to Genesis 1. Before sin entered the world. And you see Adam and Eve in the garden. And they are there and they know that God has placed them there. He has created them. He has made them. They are living uh, in such a way as to enjoy the creation that God has made in the garden that he has placed them in. God has given them work to do. And they are enjoying that work and delighting in that. They are delighting in the relationship that they have with one another. There weren't any marital squabbles whatsoever. You know, between husband and wife, they they loved one another because the focus and the center of their life was God. And so they enjoyed that relationship, of course, with God. But when sin entered the world, the focus of their lives changed. Rather than the focus being God... The focus became themselves. Well, you can just imagine if two individuals all of a sudden begin to focus upon themselves, they are no longer drawn together because of the love of God, of the love for God, but instead they want the other person to value what they value. And they want to use that person to meet their needs. And so, of course, there's that division between uh, in their relationship between husband and wife and, of course, between God. And so as humanity, we stand before God guilty of the sin. But, but, but Paul is now writing to these Ephesians to say that God has saved them from their sin because of the good news of the gospel. And not only that, but he has given them once again the ability and the life where God can be the center of their existence. And he is slowly over time making them in the image of Christ. It's a slow and long process, but a very sure process. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, describes uh, the Christian life in this way, sort of the work that the Holy Spirit does in the heart of Christians as sort of like a home remodeling job. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts um, terribly and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here and putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come 
and to live in it himself. And so the whole time God is working on our lives as believers to be like him. But of course, there is the devil, there is the world, there is the the remaining, that remnant of sin within us that seeks to stop and to destroy the work that God is doing. And so as one person put it, they said, life with God is like living in a construction zone in the middle of a war. That our life is like living in a construction zone in the middle of a war. That God is building something beautiful and we have the great hope that he's going to complete that. But at the same time, Satan is seeking to destroy that work that God is doing. And, and some, that, what, that's the picture that Paul is placing before us here in verses 15 and 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, because the days are evil. Now, we are prone as Christians to agree with Paul, right? But how we define evil days is usually the fact that our political candidate didn't get elected as president. Instead, somebody else got elected that we think is going to drag our country farther down. And so we see that as evil days. Or we think about the sexual perversion that's just increasing more and more. Or the selfishness of, of business just you know, using consumers to get what they want. And we look at all these things and we think that that's what the days are evil. But let me suggest to you that the days are evil because of the unhealthy influence that a worldly view of life exerts on Christian thinking. That Christians are being tempted to think like the world. Take your Bibles, if you would, and, and ter- turn to 1 John chapter Two very familiar passage where John writes to the church and he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the world, at least in the West, in the place where we live, views life sort of as like a playground for the self-focused pursuit of pleasure. We want to do that which will make us happy. There's a sign that put it well. It said, in the end, what life is about is having the most pleasurable experience. And so the world in which we live is constantly living tempting us to view life with ourselves as the center. It is to please me. But Paul describes this life in the letter to Timothy in this way, as he talks about what life is like between Christ's first coming and his second coming in the last days. He says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, Unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, uh, not not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Couldn't that come right out of the headlines of our newspapers? I mean, that, that's where we are. But these words were written over 2,000 years ago to the church. 
And and as Christians, I think we are prone to view life uh, either as an opportunity to create sort of a comfortable, pleasurable life for ourselves, or we're trying to guard ourselves against the evil world. And so we think that there's sort of good in our life and there's evil in our life. But what Paul wants us to understand is, is that even that pleasurable part of life can be evil if we are seeking to focus our lives upon ourselves rather than glorifying God. But we don't see that oftentimes. And so we can be deceived into thinking, well, if I just live my life this way, if I'm just sort of accumulating things and, you know, doing well for my family and we're happy and everything's okay. But Paul says, be on your guard. Be careful how you live because the days are evil. So even what we think is good sometimes can actually be that which would draw us away from the Lord. And that's why the, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We can be people that have a tendency to drift. And so Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. Now, how do we live wisely? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. What, what does it mean to live wise? Well, wisdom is more than knowledge, but it is very much related to knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge in our lives. Now, it's, it's, it is knowing the will of God for our lives, which we know comes from the Word of God, from the Scriptures. And, and then it is not only knowing that Word, but it is applying this to our lives. And so the first thing we see in verse 17 is that we need to understand God's will. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he's talking about us when our priorities are, are God's priorities. That's what he's seeking for to be. When, when our priorities are God's priorities, he is free to work and through us to accomplish great things. To see God's kingdom be built up. When we, our priorities are not his priorities, then he can do little with us because he has little of us. Because we have not given our hearts to him. Now please, don't understand that to mean that we're limiting God in any way. But God works through his children that are faithful. And even the Israelites in the Old Testament, as they disobeyed the Lord, the Lord's like, fine, I will destroy these people and I will raise up someone else that will, that will be obedient and do my will. Because that's how the Lord works. But he warns us, even as Christians, he said, therefore, do not be foolish. The unwise believer who behaves in a foolish manner tries to function apart from God's will and is inevitably weak and frustrated and ineffective both in his personal life and in his work for the Lord. And, and I wonder how much of the frustration in our lives is due to the fact that our priorities are not God's priorities. That we're trying to live our lives the best way we know how. We're even trying to live our lives as good people. We're even trying to live our lives as Christians. But we find ourselves maybe not seeking the Lord's will, not going to his word to say, God, what do you desire? And we're just trying to, uh, to figure out what's the best way forward. 
And so we move forward according to, to our ways rather than the ways of the Lord. And yet it's interesting, I think, as Presbyterians, we speak a lot about God's sovereignty and about his will being done, right? I mean, even back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, uh, we, or verse 11, excuse me, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We know that God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And as Christians, we even pray for God's will. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 in the Lord's Prayer, how do we pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that the desire of our hearts, brothers and sisters? Are we open to doing God's will in our lives no matter how much it conflicts with what we want for ourselves and for those around us? Thinking about the illustration of the house and sort of that remodeling job. You know, are we okay with the Lord to work on the plumbing and to do sort of some superficial changes in our lives? But how do we do when God says, no, I want to really, I want to reach in and I want to grab the idols of your life. I want to take those. I want to reach in and take those things that you have set your heart upon and those things that are so dear to you. Are we okay when he totally puts up a whole new floor, he knocks out a whole wing of the house? Is there something that God has been confronting you with and yet you have been resisting him? Have you been wrestling with the Lord over something that he has called you to do or something that he has called you to give up? Are you willing to rest in him? So he calls us, first of all, to know his will, but second of all, to make the most of our lives. Look at verse 16. Let me, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. A wise Christian, Paul says, is one who examines his use of time and treats it as a precious resource, who makes the most of it. John MacArthur uh, says this, he said, Outside of purposeful disobedience of God's word, the most spiritually foolish thing a Christian can do is to waste time and opportunity to fritter away his life in trivia and in half-hearted service to the Lord. Now, as Paul is talking here about time, he's not necessarily talking about the seconds on a clock. Really, the word that he uses here, it talks about a season. It talks about a period of time. And so what he's saying, in essence, is, is that God has set boundaries on our lives. He has given us our lives to use those things for, for God's glory. And God allows some of his children to live and to serve far into old age. But others, he grants only a few years before he takes them home. And none of us knows how long that will be. I know, I remember when I was in college, I ran the snack bar in the student center. And I got to know a lot of different students. But I got to know this one guy named Bob. And Bob and I, we really didn't know each other until he started to come into the snack bar. And then uh, the Lord just sort of bonded our hearts together. It's maybe like David and Jonathan. I don't know. We just really became good friends. I found out he felt like he was called to the ministry as well. So he was getting ready to go to seminary after college. I was going to go to seminary after college. We found out we were going to go to the same seminary. And it was just great. And uh, one weekend, 
went by and then Monday came and I have some friends that came to me and said, Hey Rick, want to let you know Bob is dead. Bob is dead? I just talked to Bob. Well, come to find out he was in a car with some friends and they were driving back from town and they lost control on a curve and crashed the car and the only person that was injured was Bob and he was killed. The Lord took him home just like that. You just never know how much time that we might have. I read this week of an ancient Greek statue that was depicted a man with wings on his feet and a large lock of hair on the front of his head and there was no hair on the back. And the inscription below this statue was this. Who made you? Lysippius made me. What is your name? My name is Opportunity. Why do you have wings on your feet that I may fly swiftly away? Why do you have a great forelock that men may seize me when I come? Well, why are you bald on the back that when I'm gone by, none can lay hold of me? That's what opportunity is like. It's fleeting. It comes to us. We must seize it when it comes. But once it's gone, it's gone. And there's nothing that we can do. And the Apostle Paul understood that. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 24, Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus, uh, the elders of this church. And he's leaving, and Paul says this to the elders. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul understood that his life was prescribed by God, and so he used the days that the Lord had given him and the months and the years to his praise. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on the day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Paul says, I have lived my life the way that God has called me to live. As a matter of fact, as I've lived my life, my focus has been on eternity and the crown of glory that I will receive. He lived his life here on this earth in light of eternity. He understood that God in his providence sends his people opportunities uh, in which to serve in his name. Now, I'm not just talking about reading your Bible. I'm not just talking about praying. If you look at chapter 6 that we're going to be looking at here uh, shortly, um, the rest of chapter 5 actually, and in chapter 6, Paul talks about relationships between husbands and wives. He talks about parents and fathers in particular in relation with their children or, or how we function in our work. God cares about the day-to-day -day things that we do. And he calls us and he seeks for us to live those ways according to his will. For his glory. But I think it's interesting. As you look at the church at Ephesus. Uh, not only did Paul write to them. But John wrote to them too. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 2. And, and John said to the church at Ephesus. He, he says I commend you. 
for your good work, for your perseverance, for resisting false teaching. But he says, but I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. And uh, as we look later on, John MacArthur actually points out, he said, what's so sad about the church is Ephesus is, you know, Jesus warned that he was going to remove their lampstand if they didn't repent. And John MacArthur points out, he says, sometime during the second century, the church in Ephesus disappeared and there's never been a congregation there since. Because the church at Ephesus did not heed Paul's advice and the Lord's warning, it ceased to exist. Instead of helping redeem the evil days in which it existed, the church fell prey to them. Brothers and sisters, if, there was a, if there's a sense of urgency in the days of the Apostle Paul, is there not much more of a sense today as we are closer to the return of Jesus Christ? What does Paul say to the church at Rome in Rome thir Romans 13, 11? Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So that let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. So Paul calls the church to understand what the Lord's will is. And, and also to live uh, a life according to the opportunities that God gives. But then finally he says to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you think, what? Wine? Spirit? Well, I don't understand. Why would he put these two ideas together? But when you realize that Paul is speaking of those things that control us, it makes more sense. Of course, and I'm not going to get into discussion about what the Bible says about alcohol and all that, you know, but we know that the Bible doesn't forbid alcohol. I mean, Jesus turned water into wine, but it does warn against drunkenness, about giving ourselves over to alcoholism. And John Calvin, he, said, he made this point, he goes, when one gets drunk, they soon slip into immodesty and are not restrained by shame, where wine reigns wantonness, or that is immorality, will rule. Paul Tripp tells a story of going to a family reunion when he was young and he said they would have a big potluck and then after the potluck then all the alcohol would come out. And he said his parents who were Christians had taught all the kids how to eat the meal quickly, sort of make the rounds to say hi to all the aunts and uncles and then they were out the door before the alcohol came out because his mother and father didn't want him to be exposed to all of that. Well, this one particular day, his mom got caught up in an evangelistic opportunity with one of his relatives, and she was talking about Jesus with them and had, didn't realize that one of her uncles had, or had gotten really drunk and was making very provocative comments about women. And then all of a sudden, she realized what was going on, and she snatched up her kids, and she was taking him out the door. And Paul Tripp says, I remember it very well. He said, I don't think my feet touched the steps. She stuffed us in the car, and before she drove away, she said, Paul and Mark, I want to say something to you, and I want you never to forget it. She said, there's nothing that comes out of the mouth of a drunk that wasn't there in the first place. 
She said, the alcohol didn't create the sexual perversion that came out of my uncle's mouth. He was actually thinking those thoughts in his sobriety. What did alcohol do? It simply loosened the lips. And when his lips were loose, out came his heart. And that's what wine does. It leads to debauchery. But, but it's not just wine that leads to reckless living. Uh, you can replace wine with any idol. It could be drugs or music or television or video games or romance novels or work or YouTube videos, whatever you want to put. But Paul says that we are to be filled with the Spirit, not controlled with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. The word that he uses there, it's a continuous action. We are to be continually, daily filled with the Spirit. And not only that, but it's in the passive sense, so it's an action that happens to us. We don't fill ourselves with the Spirit of God. The filling is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit himself as he works in the life of the believer. Now, as we think about what it means to be filled, we might think of a, a cup and a pitcher where you fill that cup up with water. Uh, but that's really not what he's saying here. Actually, there's different uses for that word. I mean, it could be actually a wind that fills the sails, so it sort of carries the ship along. And in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, uh, Peter talks about how there were men who wrote the scriptures who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But it also carries the idea of to permeate, and it was used of salt to permeate meat in order uh, to, to flavor it and to preserve it. And God wants his Holy Spirit to permeate the lives of his children. But even more than that, it connotates the idea of total control. So the person who is filled with the, with the Spirit is someone who is under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we get more of the Holy Spirit than we got when we became believers in Jesus Christ. But it means that we are under his total domination and control. Uh, so the Christian is, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that happen? Well, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 16 through 25. This is a parallel passage to the, the text that we're looking at in Ephesians. As a matter of fact, whenever you're not sure about something, what's the general rule of thumb? Let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? Let's not guess what it means. Let's see what Scripture says. And as you look at Colossians chapter 3, it talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual thong, songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. It talks about husband or wives submitting yourself to your husbands and husbands loving your wives and not provoking your children. You know, it's the same things that Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus about. But in Ephesus, where he writes and he says, be filled with the Spirit, it's interesting that in Colossians 3, verse 16, he says, instead, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So, in other words, if we, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the word of God, so that his thoughts will be our thoughts, and his standards our standards, and his work our work. To be filled with the Spirit is to live in that consciousness that Christ is, is present with us and that we're seeking to live as he lives. I, I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, you know, it's the idea that if you cut a Christian or you poke him, he's going to believe Scripture. But it's not just enough to know Scripture. 
there are some people who know Scripture inside and out better than I know, and they have no faith in Jesus Christ. But it is the idea of knowing Scripture and applying that word to your life, of someone who lives it. I know I grew up in a small country church, and we had this guy, his name was Chet Bulls. I'll never forget Chet. He was a guy that, you know, sometimes on Sunday nights we'd have testimonies. And he would stand up in front of the church and he would talk about the goodness of the Lord. And he always had his Bible up here like this and he was waving it. And his Bible was so used, it was about ready to fall apart. And if you opened it up, it was marked up and he had notes out to the side. And if you talked to him, he just oozed scripture. Whenever he faced a decision in life, he'd always say, well, what does God's word say about that, Rick? And he was always, he was about, he was a man of the word. And he lived that, and he, and he obviously was full of God's spirit. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. That as we walk every day, that being filled with the spirit would be walking thought by thought, decision by decision, being under the control of the Holy Spirit as we read God's word. And as we do that, we see the effects of that in our lives. First, in verse 19, there's an inward effect. It changes our hearts. It gives us a heart of joy that sings praises to God. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, Christians might differ as to what the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are, but the reality is, is that as we do that, we express a heart of joy and thanksgiving to the Lord for what he has done in our lives. I mean, listen to the words of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. It's appropriate for believers to praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. It's because we have been made righteous in Jesus Christ, purified from sin, that we become partakers of God's holiness, that we sing to him and we worship him. But it not only changes our lives inwardly, but upwardly as well, as we give thanks to the Lord. Verse 20 giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as we recognize that God is in control of our lives, that we give praise to him in all things. We oftentimes do that when things are going good. We'll say, thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you for providing this or that or the other thing. But this is an attitude that gives thanks to God no matter what the circumstances are that understands that God works all things according to the uh, purpose of... Uh, my mind just went blank. I'm sorry. Anyway, that Romans 8.28, but just that God works all things good to his glory and for the good of his people. But, but brothers and sisters, we can only do that if we come to God in humility. It, only if we come to him understanding that we don't deserve anything. If you think about it, the thing that gets in our way most often is our pride. That we think that we are owed something. Is that not the first sin that occurred? Even Satan, as he thought that he should sit on the throne of God. And so he, he confronted God and of course he was cast out of heaven. And then as Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan said, Really? Did God promise you that? In other words, 
Is he really giving you what's good? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. And so there was a sense of that pride. But as God works in our hearts to give us that humility, it gives us that thanksgiving to him as we are filled with the spirit. But also it affects our actions outward as well towards one another. And there is a, a reverence of being subject and, and a joy in being subject to one another. He said submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when he says here be subject, he, it, this is a military term meaning to arrange under rank. The main idea is sort of relinquishing my rights that I might serve under someone else. And we see throughout scripture places where Paul tells us to be subject to those like elders in the church, to be subject to one another, to be subject to human institutions and all of these things. Because this is what glorifies the Lord. Now, I'm not going to talk about that a lot because that's really, this is sort of a, a transition statement to what's coming up next as we talk about the relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents and, and work and things like that. But brothers and sisters, as we close today, I just want us to remember that Jesus is that supreme example for fulfilling these commands in Ephesians 5. 15 through through 21 that Jesus knew that his time on earth was short and he would soon be cut off. I mean, we see that by phrases that where Jesus would say, well, my time has not yet come. He knew that he had a set amount of time or he would say my time has come. And so he would set his face to go to Jerusalem because he knew that he must die and he was always functioning according to the limited privilege of the opportunity of time that he had been given to do the will of his father. And brothers and sisters, that's the privilege that we have as well. As new creatures in Christ, we've been set free from the selfishness of our own heart's desire. And Jesus says, don't live under bondage to your own passions and desires. I have saved you that you would be set free, that you could serve me. That you could find true satisfaction. That you could rest in me. And we could see the work of God's kingdom go forth. That's a humbling thing. To think that God uses instruments like us, right? But he does for his own glory. Let's take just a moment, if we could, and reflect upon the word that was preached this morning. That we might consider how these things apply to our lives. So please bow with me for a time of silent prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have given to us and that you are saving us each and every day uh, to walk more with you. I do pray, God, that you would help us to be careful how we live each and every day. Uh, Lord, it's, it's just so easy to sort of fit into the culture in which we live, um, even sometimes the church culture in which we live, and to do the things that we do because it just feels so right or it just seems so right. But God, help us to be careful. Help us to live as people that are in the end times, that are awaiting your return. And God, I just pray that the, the intensity of the work that you're doing in our world would become real to us. That God, that we would understand that you use your church to do your work. And may we give ourselves wholeheartedly to you.
we pray, Lord, that you would help us in our in our reading and our meditating of the Word of God to to uh, be ever strengthened and even ever increased, Lord, to to know you and to walk with you and to understand what you have called us to do and how we are to live. Lord, I pray for the work of your Spirit to to open our eyes to our heart's condition and maybe those things that we need to repent of and ask for your forgiveness for the sin of our heart. Oh God, please stir us up to, to love and to good works for your glory. We thank you, O oh Lord Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen.